Uh, it properly begins at the at the uh, Last Supper, which would have happened on Thursday, so that would be yesterday or last night. Um, Christ gathered up with his disciples to to enjoy the Seder feast, the the, the Last Supper is what we call it. Um, and I'll read that, and we'll talk about it in a minute. Um, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it amongst you. 
For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going, to, is going to betray me is with mine at this table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Um, the, oh, and I forgot to bump the slide forward, sorry. The, uh, this week, John Durga did a uh, Seder feast with the youth group and with the kids. And um, every time I've ever watched him do this, every time I've ever been a part of a Seder feast, um, it blows my mind that you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, all the way, well, to Exodus as it relates to the Seder feast, and you can follow the story of Jesus in everything that happens along the way. Um, The Seder was the meal that they would have to remember God delivering the people out of exile, out out of the land of Egypt. And, and the first Passover, when the angel of the Lord passed over and, and the firstborn were all killed, and they painted their doors with the, the blood of the lamb. And, and as you eat this meal, every little bit of the meal um, is a part or a symbol that relates to that history. And so, like, like for thousands of years, I mean, like three, 4,000 years um, to today, uh, Jews still eat this meal where they... They dip their leafy greens in, in salt water to remember the tears of the slaves you know, in Egypt. And when they eat the lamb, and the lamb is a reminder of that lamb that, they, that was slain um, in, in, you know, in preparation to save the, the people from the angel of death. Um, and, and all of this build up. And then like when Jesus starts out, I'm going to back up here to my, my first slide. Um, when he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Because up until this point, all of history has been pointing to this moment. Like everything that had happened up until, you know, the, the kings and the prophets and, and every aspect of Jewish history, all the way up until Christ's birth, like it's all building up to this like three-day, four-day period where, where Christ inaugurates it with all of this symbolic stuff where they point back and they say, this is it coming. Now, there's a really cool thing, which I didn't know until John talked about it this week, and, and so John taught me something kind of cool. Um, they used to end the Seder feast with um, this lamb that was sacrificed. And, and Christ over and over again calls himself, I'm the lamb of God, you know, sent to take away the sins of the world. Um, and the lamb that covered them like with blood to keep them from death and, and to save them from God's wrath. Um, and, and they used to end the meal with the Seder or with this lamb. They would end it with lamb. But when they went into exile in, in Babylonia, like 700 years before this happened, 600 years, um, they stopped using a lamb at this part of the meal because they didn't have a temple to sacrifice it in. Because the temple had been destroyed. And so they would instead use bread. And they would break the bread. And so Christ was breaking the bread, but the bread was a symbol of a lamb. And so when Christ breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples, he says, this is my body broken for you. He's, he's basically saying, look, this bread, like this is the lamb of God. I am the lamb of God. This is all 
me being sacrificed for you. This is about to happen. Um, a few months ago, we did Christmas, and I love Christmas. I love that, that we do this Christmas Eve service where we celebrate the light of the world coming, you know, where God himself stepped into the world and was amongst us. And it's easy to forget. Like, it's easy to forget how dark the world is without Christ. Um, and it's easy to forget, like, how dark the world would have been without without the ability to know God, um, without obeying a bunch of laws, without fearing that he'd crush you over your sins. And the light of the world, like Christ himself, brought this, this flame of God's grace back. And as we talk about what's going on here with Good Friday, as we build up to this moment of, of the crucifixion and the death and him taking our sin on us, um, it is all just very gradually the light going out. Right, And as he gathers with his disciples, he warns them, it's coming. You know, this is my body, and it is about to be broken for you. This is my blood poured out as a sign, like the new and everlasting covenant, like, like God is going to pass over all of you who are under my blood. And this is an amazing, amazing bit of history that all, like God's plan for us, God's plan for you, like you and me and your neighbor and, and your kids and your wife and your grandparents and everybody you ever knew, like God's plan to reconcile all of us to him begins like, like to come to fruition here, like at that meal, at that last supper. And so Christ even points and he says, one of you, one of you at this table is about to betray me. And as they broke up to leave, Judas Judas stepped away and went to the temple authorities and he gathered up the, the troops and he gathered up the, the temple police and they prepared to go and arrest Christ. Um, and as Christ finished up, they went out and they prayed. Um, we're going to continue to worship and, and understand as we're worshiping, like this whole process is on the way to the cross. This is the first step on the pathway to the cross. This is the first step that that God takes us closer and closer to this, this crushing death that Jesus will suffer. Um, and it's so huge for you and for me.
tempted and tried, you were human. The Word became flesh for my sin and death. Now you're risen, oh, and everything I want said dear, I count it all. So Jesus' disciples, the 11, they go out of the city and they go to the Mount of Olives. Now, um, the the upper room is right next to the tomb of David in the actual city. And so, like, like they are sort of in the heart of things. But when they went to to the, uh, the garden where Christ prays, um, the garden is outside and it's sort of on a hill on the far side. Like, so you would come out of the, the east gate and you would go down through the Kidron Valley and then up on the other side is this garden, right? And it's like more of a, a, a grove of olive trees. And, and, um, now the whole hill is actually covered with, with, uh, cemeteries. It is, it is just end to end graves because there's this belief that the Messiah, like the Jews believe that the Messiah will come and he'll go in through the East Gate and the dead will rise. And, and so there's this belief that, that the Messiah is coming, but Christ had already come. And, and the dead who rose immediately were the dead, like the spiritually dead, those of us who are dead in our hearts, who know Christ and are brought back to life. Um, but, but at this point, he's on this hill on the far side. And the crazy thing is, like the Kidron Valley in between, um, it's famous because David's, David's palace was right next to where the temple is, right? And from David's palace, you can look down in the Kidron Valley, and it is pitch black, at night, I mean black, because it's in a valley between two mountains, and it is Israel, and it's like like Montana now, right? You know, it just gets dark at night. And David, actually, it was popularly called the Valley of Death. And so when um, David wrote Psalm 23, probably sitting on the roof of his palace looking out over the Kidron Valley, he said, Lo, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, Right? Like, that's the place in between where Christ is praying and where the temple is. Um, And we're going to pick up there. 
Jesus went out as usual on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Now, Christ is there and he's praying. And and take note of what he says. If there's any way to not do this, like if the cup can be passed from me, like like that's okay. But your will, not mine. Um, Christ is aware that he's about to undergo something really rough. And beyond, like, the physical torture and beyond the, the crucifixion, beyond, like, the death that he dies, um, we're told that, that Christ becomes sin. That when God looks on Christ, he sees our sin. And that he pours his wrath out on him. Um, and because of that, like, we're forgiven. Like, God spends his wrath against Christ. And, and when he looks at us, instead of seeing our sin, instead of seeing our fallenness, he sees Christ's righteousness. And so Christ knows that going to the cross, that going to this, um, he's going to make it so that God sees you right, right? So that God sees you forgiven, that God sees you made holy. And it is God's command to Christ. And Christ is submissive. And he says, I will do what you want. Now, mind you, as he's praying, he would have been out there praying for about an hour. And as he's praying, he would have watched as a group of soldiers walked out of the East Gate and walked down the hill into the Kidron Valley and then up the hill onto the Mount of Olives, carrying torches, right, because it's night. And so the whole time that Christ is praying, he's watching as these men are coming to arrest him. And so when he says, if there's any way for this cup to pass, he's saying it as they're coming to get him, knowing wholly what is about to happen, watching it coming, Um, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Um, Luke is a doctor, and I think one of the reasons he includes this is a lot of people that that argue. One of the reasons that that Luke mentions this detail is um, there's this condition that people can experience when they're under extreme stress. Um, the monitor is way too hot. Can you turn it down? Where they're under extreme stress, where the capillaries in their skin burst, and they actually, you can actually sweat blood. And the argument is that this is probably what's happening here, that Christ is so overwhelmed, so terrified, so grieved, so um, stressed out by what is about to happen, that he sweats blood um, in advance of it happening. And he's watching these guys coming, he's sweating blood, and he, when he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples and he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And while he was speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, Simon Peter, by the way, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priest, 
the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him? Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And so they've arrived and Christ is betrayed by one of his closest followers. um, Betrayed with a kiss. And Christ acknowledges you couldn't do this before now. And you know why they couldn't do it before now? Because, like, God wouldn't let them. And in fact, actually, Christ acknowledges that... um, Christ acknowledges elsewhere, like in one of the other Gospels, because all of the Gospels have this, this prayer in the garden and the arrest. In one of the other um, Gospel accounts, he acknowledges, I could call 10,000 angels out of the heavens right now. Like Peter cuts the guy's ear off, and, and Jesus says, stop, I don't even need you. i got an army at my disposal. I'm not going because I have to. Um, and in fact, he puts the guy's ear back on after he cuts it off, which has got to be really you know, deflating for Peter. <laughs> And then he says, this is your hour. You only get to do this because darkness reigns now. Um, And bit by bit, the light of the world begins to fade out that night. And, And God's presence amongst us begins to begins to be snuffed out and begins to be spread away. And Christ is terrified of this. Christ did not go into it singing songs. He did not go into it saying, this will be a trip to Disney World. He goes into it saying, if there's any other way. Um, oftentimes in the worst days that I've had as a believer, as, as a, the hardest, most depressing, most anxious, most crushing days, I remember that, that Christ went to the cross knowing my name. Right, Because if he was omniscient, if he was the son of God, he knew who all of his sheep were. He knew your name. And he hung there and he knew who you would be. And he did it for you. He did it for me. And he did it for Jeremy. And he did it for like every rotten, broken, filthy one of us. Um, and as we celebrate this, this Good Friday, as we commemorate it, as we worship, as we, as we spend time praying and hearing the word, and we spend time reflecting and preparing for Easter, we have to stop and we have to say thank you. Like, thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll continue to worship.
Jesus was taken away to his trial, and in preparation for for going in to be put on trial, and and by the way, when he was tried, he wasn't tried in court. They tried him in the middle of the night at the high priest's house. Actually, not even at the high priest's house, at the high priest's father-in-law's house, Um, and, and like he was kind of the guy running the show behind the scenes at the time, and so Christ was taken there, and as they were preparing to try him, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesied who hit you. And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the, mighty, of the mighty God. And they all asked, Are you the Son of God? And he replied, You say that I am. And then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Christ was... From before the world was created, Christ sat at the right hand of the Father. When the world was created, it was created through him. All things that exist were created through him. And actually, one of the things that the scriptures tells us is that, um, that for all of eternity, Christ was surrounded by choirs of angels that sang praise to him. Um, that that um, Christ's glory was constantly sung about, and not just because the angels were made to do that, but because you know they couldn't help it. You know, I I, I, uh, I there are days when I get up in the morning and I watch the sunrise over the mountains over here, and I can't help but stop and, and take a deep breath and say, "Wow." Um, it's that kind of response where, where Christ's glory and his majesty and his holiness and his set-apartness and his, his everything, his grandeur was so great that angels sang his glory night and day. And here he is surrounded by guards 
who beat him and mocked him, who spit on him, who abused him in a way that, that, well, in a way that the Son of God really should never have experienced, right? You know, a man without sin. Um, and as they tried him, um, he, he is, I mean, honestly, like, like I could spend an hour talking about this particular element to this. Um, almost every component of Christ's trial was illegal. Like, he, he, in every way, they violated his rights. In every way, they framed him. And in fact, actually, when they brought witnesses to speak against him, the witnesses that spoke against him, like, broke Jewish law. In every way possible, they distorted and contorted and broke God's commandments regarding how laws would, would work. And so as Christ is put on trial, everybody knows he's innocent. And even though everybody knows he's innocent, they go out of his way to make sure that he was not going to come out of this alive. Like he was on his way to the cross, like from the very moment he was arrested. Um, they had no discussion, no question. This was what was going to happen. And in fact, actually, before Christ showed up in Jerusalem, um, the high priest said, it's better for one man to die for the good of the nation. You know, he said, we're going to kill him, but it's better that he die than, than he gets the Romans mad at us. And he didn't know what he was saying. Like, Christ dying for the good of the nation, what was going to happen? Like, it was for the good of the people. It was the good, for the good of all of us. And so as Christ, like, as they prepared him, as they tried him, as they put him on this sham trial, this humiliating experience, this, this sinful, wicked display for the world, um, again, Christ did it all willingly, Right? Like any one of us for our sins could stand before God and be put on trial. Any one of us for, for the ways that we violate God's commands every day, we could stand before God with nothing to say. And our accuser would call out every tiny little wicked thought, every tiny little selfish deed, every way that we fail to glorify God, every way that we fall short, and we would face God's wrath. And Christ innocent faced this fake trial for us. And again, as we gather on Good Friday, we, we mourn and, and we celebrate. And we understand that, that you know, the light is going out of the world in this moment. Um, and again, all we have is thank you. Thank you.
switch over to the Gospel of John. Um, and the reason for this is, um, at this point in the story, um, 10 of the disciples, or actually 11 if you count Judas, right? Um, 11 of the disciples have taken off. Um, during the trial at, at Caiaphas's house, Peter denied Christ three times and, and ran off and wept bitterly and, and doesn't show up in the story again until after the crucifixion, um, until Easter morning. And um, John is the one guy, right? John took Peter to the trial. Like, he's the only reason Peter got in, um, was John knew the guard and got him in the door. And then John followed Christ to, um, to, the, Roman, like, to the Roman authority. Um, the, the Jews could not execute a person themselves. And so they had to take um, all of their prisoners to the Romans and have them execute them for them. Um, and, and so Jesus is brought to Pilate, and Pilate's got kind of a, he's got a pretty rough relationship with the Jews. They're not friends, right? Like, because they're constantly making trouble for him, and, and Pilate's very much a politician. And so Pilate deals with Jesus, um, and we, we read in John's account, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, 
I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. Um, We're going to go on a little bit in this account, but we're going to pause here a second. Um, Flogging in the ancient world, uh, like a Roman citizen couldn't be flogged more than 40 times because over 40 was a death sentence, right? Like if you were flogged above 40 times, generally there wasn't enough of you left to hold you together. I mean, it was a a way to be killed. It was a really bad way. Um, And so that Christ was flogged this way um, is part of the reason why the crucifixion was so short. Um, Christ hung on the cross for six hours, which is a very small amount of time for for a person being crucified to live. Like sometimes they would administer medical treatment and keep you alive for a week or two just because the Romans were horrible. Um, In Christ's case, he was beaten nearly to death at this point. Um, He was brought out with this crown of thorns. And when we think of thorns, I think of rose bushes. You know what I mean? Those little cute thorns. Um, the Middle East is not a nice place. The thorns we're talking about are about three inches long. And so this crown of thorns would have been the sort of thing that you couldn't have put together without heavy gloves. And in the other Gospels, we see where they put it on his head and they took a stick and pounded on it to make sure it stuck. Um, And they brought him out with his crown and with his robe and they presented him humiliated before the crowds. Um, At this point in time, Pilate... Like, for all the faults that Pilate had, he's trying to let Jesus go because he can't come up with a reason to charge him. The Romans didn't generally just kill people. They tried to be a little just. And in this case, he's trying to let him go. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judge's seat. And sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. This whole account. I mean, before we actually start that, crucifixion, for for a Jewish person in the ancient world, crucifixion was a sign that God hated you. 
All right? Like, and I'm not putting that lightly. Like, that is very much the case. Like, the prophets say, any man who's hung from a tree to die, like, is cursed by God. So for them to say crucify him, number one, it is a super awful thing to experience, right? Like, it is bad. And beyond that, the fact that they're having him crucified, like, is an indication of their contempt and their hatred for him. And to go a step further, the Jewish priests and leaders, they hated Caesar, and they said, Caesar's our king, not that guy. And we hear echoes at this point. Like way back, you go into the Old Testament, right between Judges and First King, where, where um, the people are demanding Saul to be their king. They're demanding an earthly king. And I, or, uh, Samuel goes to God and he says, he says God, like, like this is an awful thing. And God said, don't be sad. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They don't want me to be their king. And what we're seeing here is the people are saying, we don't want God to be our king. We don't want his son to be our king. We want Caesar. We want this, this man that we hate um, even more. Than, you know, we hate this, this Jesus fellow even more than we hate him. And, and Christ allowed it. And I, I included that. I mean, I kind of included a big chunk of uh, John here. But the reason I did that was... Um, when Christ, he says, don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? And Christ responded, you have no power over me. Like, there are times when I play fight with my kids, and my, my little five-year-old boy will come up and throw a punch at me, and I'll, ah, oh, you know. If it really came down to a fight between us, I'm pretty sure I could take him. Um, this is God. This is, <laughs> this is God who could say a word and Pilate would cease to exist um, and Christ allowed it and when he went out he knew they would shout crucify him he knew that they would call him out to be killed and he knew he was going to the cross he knew he was going to this shameful death to this humiliation um, and again I say it over and over again because we can't emphasize it enough like this is for you and me the cross, this moment of agony, this humiliation, this sham trial, the whole nine yards, it is all for you and me. All of it. It's a blessing beyond words. And, and, and it's important that we stop before we celebrate Easter and understand how far Christ went on our behalf. How horrible he went through, like, like, like our, our punishment. We're going to continue to worship.
And they take his cross and they give it to this fellow Simon and they force Simon to carry it for him. And he carries it outside of the city to this place, Golgotha, and, and um, means place of the skull. And, and there are a couple of guesses as to where this spot may have been, but it was outside of the inner city. And so like just outside of town, um, they take him and they crucify him. And, and in the ancient world, crucifixion is um, really, really awful. Um, the Romans were gifted at killing people. They were gifted at subjugating people. They were gifted at making examples of people. And so as Christ was crucified, usually they would do this. Um, the, the scriptures are generally, they'll say hand. But hand in Greek generally means from the elbow to the fingertip. And the Romans typically, there's a spot right in the wrist where they would drive the nail right between the two bones of the forearm. And there's a cluster of nerves that runs down and when you pierce those nerves it causes pain to run from your palm 
into the middle of your back, and it is excruciating. And actually, you're, you're, you lose control of your hands then, and they become like, like claws almost. They just bunch up, and you no longer can, can control them, but you feel unbelievable pain. And usually, they drove the nail not through the foot itself proper, because like that wouldn't hold very well. Um, they would line up the feet, and they would run the nail behind the Achilles tendon to pin you up there. And um, there's a lot of discussion about how crucifixion killed you, but generally you would hang there and you would pull your body up to breathe because it would pull your chest taut and you wouldn't be able to breathe properly. And so you would pull yourself up to breathe and then you would lower yourself down just over and over again, pushing against those nails that have been run through you. And so Christ, they take him up there and they pound nails into him. Through his hands... And through his feet. And he hangs there with this sign over his head. Um, this, this mockery of him. Two other men, both were criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. And so Christ is hanging out there amongst thieves. Um, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Then they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers sneered at him. And they said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. And they offered him wine and vinegar, And he said, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Um, And so this mocking statement, which is actually true. Um, And so he's hanging there and he's crucified and he's dying slowly. By the way, as they're preparing to crucify him, there's a, a mercy that they would offer. And they did this for centuries, like, like, or for, for, for a long time. It was a very common practice where they would offer the person who's about to be crucified a mixture of gall and, and wine, and it was actually a painkiller. And you would take it, and it would, like, deaden the pain that you experienced in the crucifixion. And Christ refused it. Um, like, he had the opportunity to experience less of it, and he refused it. Because Christ knew that he was going into something where he had to, he had to suffer. Again, for you and for me. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what, we, what our, disease, our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to him, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I I wanted to finish up this section with this little bit here because this thief on the cross did absolutely nothing to deserve salvation. He did absolutely nothing to deserve forgiveness. He is there dying for some crime he committed, and all he did was trust Christ. All he did was believe Christ. All he did was ask that Jesus remember him in eternity. And as Jesus died on that cross, all 
all we have to do, all you have to do, all your neighbor has to do, all the worst criminal in the world, the most, the most heinous, wicked man, all any of us must do is repent of our sins and believe that Christ died for us and we're forgiven. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to give enough money to the poor or, or you know, preach to millions or anything like that. We are saved because Christ did this on our behalf. I, uh, I read a, uh, a book last year where this preacher uh, who's writing the book, he was traveling in Asia, and he was talking to a Buddhist fella and to a, um, a Hindu, and they were talking about this mountain that they're looking at. And the one guy said, well, you know, I think God is like up on that mountain, and our life is climbing up to him. That was the Buddhist fella. And then the Hindu fella said, yeah, I, I agree. That is exactly what it's like. And then this Christian fella, he was Matt Chandler, um, said, you know what would be great is if God came down that mountain to us. And the other two fellows said, you know, that would be a wonderful thing. I would love to meet that God. He said, well, let me tell you about Jesus. The story of Christ is the story of God coming into the world and bringing a light for us. And the story of the cross is the story of him building a bridge up that mountain. Where, where we don't have to learn like the ins and outs of, of climbing treacherous ways. We don't have to learn the ins and outs of, of living this perfect life. We don't have to hold our tongue and pretend to be perfect. We don't have to do any of that stuff. We just have to believe. And so as we celebrate the cross, like we need to understand this is the thing that we celebrate because Christ paid our debt, paid it in full, and we don't have to buy it as a free gift. Like, Good Friday is so amazing because of this. Because your sin is paid for. Your wickedness is made clean. Your slate is, your slate is wiped completely perfect. It is light to be snuffed out. But thank God that he paid it all for us.
about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two and Jesus called out with a loud voice father into your hands I commit my spirit and when he had said this he breathed his last the centurion seeing what happened praised God and said surely this was a righteous man When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him to Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. And so Christ breathes his last. And and there are a handful of things he said right before he he came to this point where he breathed his last breath, right before he came to the point where he... He, um, where he gave up his spirit. Um, one of them was it is finished. Now, this is a huge deal because we're at the point um, where, where Passover is happening. And in fact, actually, they executed him so that they wouldn't have to bury him during Passover. And, and as they're preparing this, this whole deal, like Passover, they would have sacrificed this lamb like as a symbol, right? And, and there are all these symbols that surrounded it. But, but that, that moment, like he is our Passover land, he died for us, and darkness came into the land like this is it. And one of the things that Christ crawled out, he said, it is finished. And specifically, the word he would have used was, like as it's recorded in the Gospels, is to telestai, which means it is finished. It always has been finished, and it always will be finished. And what he's talking about there. He's talking about the fact that from the very beginning, God always intended to do this. 
like all of these sacrifices that they have have been making over the years, all of the things that existed to, to represent what Christ would do, like all of that stuff is done because it's finally come to fruition. It has finally been done. And that thing that is done is that Christ died for us. Our debt is paid. We are done. We are reconciled with God. And like when it says that the curtain in the temple was torn, there was this part of the temple where they did sacrifices. And that part of the temple like was the Holy of Holies. And no one went in there. And there was a curtain around it to keep it separate. And the only time you ever went in there, you would go in there once a year during Passover and you would pour the blood of the Lamb on the Ark of the Covenant, which probably wasn't there at this point. Um, But you would pour the blood of the Lamb on this Ark of the Covenant as a symbol of God forgiving his people for their sins like the nation of israel was forgiven for their sins like they would pour this blood and that was the symbol and that curtain separated god's mercy god's holiness god's like closeness with god from the people and so when that curtain tore and christ cried out it is finished like the very objective of it all god brought us all back together like he brought us into his presence we can crawl into his lap and say abba father like daddy god because our sin is gone, because we are his, because we are adopted, because we are close, we are family, we are made new. 700 years before this happened, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 52, he said, by his stripes we are healed. And we are. If we have faith in Christ, we are healed. Because he breathed his last and he poured himself out on our behalf. And so the light went out of the world. But Easter's coming. Thank you for joining us for Good Friday service. (laughs) As you go home tonight and as you spend the weekend, my encouragement for you is that